Please stand now for the reading of God's holy word. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And following the scripture reading, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. How is it that we might show our gratitude to God for his deliverance from our sin and misery? It's in part by observing the moral law Uh, the Ten Commandments, along with some other things, and we come to the Seventh Commandment today as we reflect on uh, the significance of this commandment for us here on Lord's Day 41. The first commandment, remember, is the law of loyalty. The second commandment is the law of worship. The third commandment is the law of reverence. The fourth commandment is the law of rest. The fifth commandment is the law of authority. The sixth commandment is the law of life. And now here the seventh commandment is the law of purity. It's a a short commandment. Uh, You shall not commit adultery. Uh, John Currid in his commentary on this says the seventh commandment is a short and concise command. In the Hebrew, it is only two words, but its brevity and terseness add gravity to the charge. Uh, We will look at first what is forbidden in the seventh commandment and then consider what is commanded or at least some of the positive actions that we ought to take to avoid uh, breaking this command. And it may seem that the first half is going to be longer than the second half. I'm not sure. But the one thing I do want to underscore is the second half is more important. Because while it's important for you to know what you are not to do, uh, the reality is you need to know uh, what positive actions you should take to help prevent your disobedience in the light of this particular command. But what is it that's forbidden in this command? Well, obviously, it's any physical relationship outside of marriage. The uh, Shorter Catechism, when it answers what's required or what's forbidden, excuse me, it says the seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Uh, Normally we focus on the actions, but as we heard Jesus talk about, it includes our thoughts. It includes uh, 
our words. Why is it that God took this particular command and made it one of the ten? Uh, what is it about this command that makes it so significant that he would put it in the uh, top priority, among others, of what we should do? Well, there are several reasons for that, but one of them, uh, perhaps the most basic and most important, is that at root, the violation of the seventh command is a violation of a commitment to a solemn and holy covenant. It's unfaithfulness to a solemn covenant that a man and a woman has made to one another in the holy institution of marriage. And one author uh, draws out why this is significant, both in our relationship with our spouse, but also it uh, impacts our relationship with our God. Uh, He writes, the reason why adultery is singled out for attention in the Decalogue is because adultery, more than any other illicit sexual behavior, has to do with unfaithfulness in a relationship of commitment. Marriage was a binding commitment of faithfulness between a man and a woman, and it was in principle similar to the covenant relationship with God himself. The crime of adultery was the social equivalent to the religious crime of having other gods. Both offenses involved unfaithfulness, and both were therefore reprehensible to God, to the God of the covenant, whose character is to be totally faithful. It is this emphasis that faithfulness expressed in obedience must permeate every sphere of life that gives a distinctive character to the law on adultery. We have this significant covenantal relationship and we dare not break it. Uh, It is... um, that's very significant. It relates to our relationship with God. It certainly is part of our connection with one another. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Malachi chapter 2. <clears throat> in Malachi chapter 2, God gives some rebuke to the Israelites in contrast to their complaining to him. <clears throat> And it's all in connection with the relationship of marriage. So in Malachi 2, verse 13, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. It's such a crucial commandment because it's a violation of a covenant, a solemn covenant that we have made. And God holds us accountable to that. 
In Ecclesiastes 5, he gave, gives us the warning not to make a vow and not fulfill it. Because he will hold us accountable uh, to our unfaithfulness uh, to that vow. And it not only <clears throat> contrasts with or compares to the relationship we have with God, but our unfaithfulness contrasts with God's eternal faithfulness. God is faithful, always faithful to his covenant. He's always, when he reveals himself to uh, Moses and he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he walks in front of him, he declares his name to the Lord, uh, his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And the imagery that Paul brings up that's all connected to this solemn and covenantal beautiful relationship between a husband and a wife is in, in, the, in the context of Ephesians 5. That's where Paul gives a, an extended discussion of uh, how, to, how to act in marriage, husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husbands. And it comes down to the end of it and his concluding statement is, this is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. The reason the relationship of marriage is so important and wonderful is because it is a picture of Christ's relationship to his bride. And while it's, un, it's, it's, it's terrible when a, a husband doesn't care for his bride, it is unthinkable that Jesus would ever abandon his bride. That Jesus would ever turn away from her. And our relationships and our marriages are a picture of that. And the glory and the holiness of that relationship <clears throat> needs to permeate our own relationships. To guide us and guard us uh, from disobedience. So a first reason why it's so important is because of the covenantal relationship. Another reason that A.W. Pink gives, it's, it's a protection against the very uh, core element of society, um, the home. He remarks, the virtues of purity are the basis of the domestic relations. And as the family is the foundation of human society, the class of duties here involved is second only to those which preserve man's existence. Hence it is that immediately following the commandment which declares the sacredness of human life, there is that precept that is a hedge about the highest relationship among men. Nothing is more essential for the social order than the relationships relationship upon which all others are subsequently based to be jealously protected against every form of attack. It, it's for the health and maintenance of society that there be strong marriages and strong homes <clears throat> that we would be faithful in that covenant relationship. There might be those who would be critical of this commandment and saying, well, God tolerated polygamy Later on in the lives of some of God's people, 
And God may have tolerated it and the people of God may have at times accommodated the culture around them, but that is not how it was intended. That was not God's design from the very beginning. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created Adam, he created Eve, and he brought them together in the first marriage. And he said, uh, said a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God's design from the very beginning was one man, one woman, in the relationship of marriage uh, for all their lives. <clears throat> it wasn't to bring something else in. And it's interesting when you read the account in Genesis, the first person to be a bigamist, which would later lead to polygamy, is not from the line of the woman, not from the line of the righteous, but it's from the line of the serpent. It's from the line of the wicked. You have in Genesis 4, you bring the line down to this person named Lamech. And Lamech had two wives, and he was also a murderer. Uh, he was the first bigamist. He was the second murderer, because Cain was the first murderer. But this is not a pattern for us to model our lives after. This is not a pattern for us to model our culture after. This is a, a, a heinous Offense against God. His design for marriage is one man, one woman in the relationship for all their lives. How do we break this commandment? We do so by the physical act of adultery. We do it also by uh, the mental and um, aspect of adultery, which Jesus explained very well there in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but some might say, well, what about other sexual impurities? Are they forbidden in this command? And the answer is absolutely yes. And we have a verse that kind of sums it all up. If you, turn, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13, verse 4. <clears throat> In the context of some other instructions he's giving the people of God, he has a statement on marriage and, and uh, moral purity. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And you have in that verse two words that encapsulate the whole gamut of possibilities. Uh, You have the clear violation uh, of the seventh commandment on adultery. That's the one. And then you have this other word for sexual impurity. And it piles in the rest. Every form of perversion that is advocated in our own society is included in this command. It's under the judgment of God. God demands moral purity. It's what the seventh commandment in part is all about. 
And any violation of that will come under God's judgment. Well, that's what we're not to do. We're not to violate that commandment in any way. What are we commanded to do? What should we do? The shorter catechism answers that we were... The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart and speech and behavior. And on either of these commandments, if you want to dig into it a little bit more, the larger catechism expounds on it quite a bit more. But when we are looking at these commandments and we're looking at what does it forbid, what does it command, we're, we're picking up a very wonderful and distinct Pauline pattern. Because as we see in the writings of Paul, as we've seen in these various commandments, as we've looked at it, Paul tells us uh, not what not to do, but it's not enough to know what we are not to do. We need to know what we are to do. It's not enough just to quit sinning. That's important. But we've got to replace that sin with a positive action to keep us on the path of righteousness. Uh, Paul never just says stop. He says stop that and do this. And it's very, very important. And And the reason it's so important for us to have some positive action is because that's a key element to guarding us against doing what is wrong. The positive steps we can take are what may preserve us from disobedience. And so I have several that I want to suggest to you. The very first thing of a positive action you can take is to cultivate a faithful marriage. For those of you that are married, a positive action for you to take is to cultivate A faithful marriage. And it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It doesn't just happen. Life has many frustrations in it. People are frustrating. I'm frustrating. You're frustrating. It takes work and determination to cultivate a faithful marriage. The union between a man and a woman. To live out that picture of Christ and his love for the church. I was referred this week to R.C. Sproul's teaching this week in his Renewing Your Mind audio series. Some of the rest of you may have heard that too. And his teaching was on the intimate marriage. Sproul has a wonderful book by that title, which is well worth looking at. But the particular day that I listened to was Sproul talking about the importance of a husband and a wife cultivating a deep intimacy in their relationship. And here he's not primarily or even directly focusing on the physical relationship. He's focusing on the spiritual and the emotional relationship. That a husband and wife have to know each other. Know what are the deep hurts, the deep longings, the deep interests, the concerns that they have. Because what the problem that 
often leads to uh, an affair is that in the marriage relationship, there's going to be some element of dissatisfaction. That's simply going to be a part of life. But then what may happen is a person may look outside their marriage to find the answer to that satisfaction in someone else. And it won't work. I mean, you may temporarily find uh, what you think is a solution, but that's not the answer. And a husband and a wife need to cultivate a faithful marriage cultivate the relationship that they have with one another. For all, the single as well as the married, we have to cultivate pure moral thoughts. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. We need to guard the relationships uh, with other people in our thinking about those things. A third thing is that you need to remember that God demands your body as well as your soul. Uh, turn, if you would, to the uh, book of Romans, and I'm going to read a few verses for us there. And we'll start with Romans 12, verse 1. 12, in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. God demands your body as his, for his service as well as your soul. Uh, go for forward to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. <clears throat> Romans eight thirteen. Where, he, where Paul writes, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. God demands your body as well as your soul. Turn to Romans 6, verse 12. <clears throat> Romans 6, verse 12 and 13. Paul writes, therefore, uh, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. As those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will tell us your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God wants the purity of your body as much as the purity of your soul. And we know that Jesus was incensed when the physical temple of God was turned into a den of thieves and robbers. How much more is it reprehensible to him when we turn our bodies into a place where wickedness dwells. God wants our purity there as well. A fourth positive action that we need to do is to guard your heart. 
Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, God guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. The command, as we've seen, combines not only external act, action, but it includes the internal um, nature of our heart, our imaginations, our contemplations, our thoughts, and it, it forbids the impurity of our, our thought life and our heart life as well. <clears throat> and you and I have to guard our hearts. We have to put up roadblocks to anything that might get in the way of a pure heart. We have to protect our heart from uh, sinful thoughts, for, from impure thoughts. And there is so much temptation in our world today that it's such a challenge. And so you, to guard your heart, you have to plan ahead. You have to think about that. It may be using a computer program uh, to keep you from looking at sites, websites that you shouldn't look at. Uh, it may be on your guard in other ways. I remember a conversation several years ago with uh, one, one of the members here and talking about looking at Fox uh, News uh, uh, website. And when you're at the top, if you don't mind the way they present their news, at any rate, you, the top half of the page is pretty good. I mean, it's just news and information. There's not really much there. But, you know, you get down further in the page. And that's where the stories and the ads can be a little more salacious. You've got to think ahead. You've got to plan ahead. You've got to set the, the roadblock. No, I'm only going to stay with what I see on the first page. You've got to need to guard your heart, for out of it is the wellspring of life. <clears throat> and then the fifth thing of a positive action is you need to stay focused on Christ. Now, you're going to say to me, well, you always say that. Yeah, I do always say that because we always need to hear that, of course. But this is the point. If Jesus is the faithful husband... And he alone is the one from whom we can receive grace and enablement to live faithfully. And we need to keep our attention upon him. We need to focus on him. He is both the pattern for our obedience. And he's also the enabler of our obedience. Christ has to be foremost we see him as the faithful bridegroom. He never leaves or casts away his bride. He never ceases to love her and delight in her, <clears throat> to nourish and cherish her. He labors to cleanse her from all unrighteousness. And he forgives her sins. You and I will stumble and fall, but it's in Christ that we receive the forgiveness of sin. And to help to get back on the path of holiness. Well, these commandments are helpful and, and I hope instructive to guide us in obedience and thankfulness to the Lord. <clears throat> and uh, we need to cultivate these things. Uh, but I want to bring this sermon to a close by offering to you 
a few more things. These are five things, five suggestions by Arthur Pink. And they overlap a little bit of what some of the things I've said. But let me give you the, his five points because he adds some that I think are really helpful. He says five suggestions for positive obedience to this command. First, cultivate a habitual sense of the divine presence. Cultivate a habitual sense of the divine presence. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And you and I need to keep foremost in our minds that wherever we are and whatever we are doing, God is there. Now, when we're in distress, that's a tremendously comforting thought. When we're in sorrow and difficulty, we want to know God is there and he is there. But when we're toying with walking off the path, we'd kind of like to be hidden from God, but we're not. So we need to cultivate that sense of the divine presence. Second thing he says is keep a strict watch over the senses. Keep a strict watch over the senses. The senses are the avenues in which we bring the refreshing waters of God's grace and his word into our lives, but it's also the means by which we bring in all the mud and the, 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 the muck that pollutes the souls. And so under that category, he says, cites a few things like Job's um, covenant. He's, Job said, I'll make a covenant with my eyes not to look on a woman in an improper way. You need to plug your ears from listening to filthy conversation. You need to close your eyes to anything that would defile. Don't read anything that defiles. You need to watch your thoughts and labor to get rid of the ones, of the evil ones that come your way. Keep a strict watch over your senses. The third thing he says is to practice sobriety and temperance. And here he's actually speaking about the abuse of alcohol or or drug abuse, because the tendency that might happen is when uh, alcohol or or some uh, substance like that can help lower our defenses and make us susceptible to giving in to temptation. And so he's using that as a specific uh, substance, but the principle is that you and I need to govern ourselves, discipline ourselves. Uh, The fourth thing he says is exercise yourself in honest and lawful employment. This is a very practical instruction. One of the problems with not only this sin, but any sin that we walk walk into is idleness. Uh, That we're we're just kind of laying around, not doing anything, and all of a sudden this temptation comes our way, and boom, we're in it. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have times of leisure and relaxing, chilling out a little bit, but the point is the way you keep from this sin is you got to stay busy. Stay busy spiritually. You got to keep your person and your mind active, active in following the Lord and not allowing the temptations to come in. And the fifth thing that he suggests is be much in earnest prayer 
begging God to cleanse your heart, praying to God to turn your eyes away from worthless things and preserve our life according to his word. Prayer should permeate everything, but it's a very wonderful and important tool to keep us on the path of godliness. So these aspects hopefully are of some help to you. And may you and I keep our priority with the Lord and with one another. And may we honor the Lord and may we honor the one we love enough to battle against this sin and not follow this path so that God himself would be glorified and honored. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and its truth. Thank you for the instruction that we can read in it to help us to walk the path of righteousness for your name's sake. We ask that you might please undergird us as we face this, this temptation, this command, the challenge of this command, as well as the others, that we might honor you morally and spiritually in the, the way we think and the way we act. And we uh, ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.